uh, we're in a four-week series and kind of using Ecclesiastes as our uh, magnifying glass on these various aspects of life here at a time of year in which we make transitions. Um, we've looked at the topics of work and pleasure in the last two weeks, and those things have an upside, as we looked at in Ecclesiastes, and then wider, and they have a downside, potentially, also. Today we're looking at something that has a downside, pretty much, and, and another downside. And that is uh, what I'll call either paradox or frustration, or when I was 10 years old, I would have said, it isn't fair. This just isn't fair. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Vanity, Solomon calls it. You remember Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. And when it says the preacher, the Hebrew there is Koheleth. So if somebody's talking about Koheleth, they're talking about Solomon. And Solomon's dispensing his wisdom in Ecclesiastes about the things of life on this earth. The things of life on this earth. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And so the goal of it, of course, is that once we come to grips with what he has to say there, we'll be able to live life wisely on the earth. You guys know in this life, I don't have to tell you, we don't always get what we want. We don't always get what we want. And then other times, we get what we don't want. You know, and sometimes we say things like, why did that have to happen? Or, why did that have to happen now? Or, more pointedly, why did that have to happen to me? It's frustrating. It's paradoxical. It's unfair. That's what we're looking at this morning. Life isn't fair. Solomon calls this vanity. There's this sense of emptiness or frustration. And you remember that the word uh, hebel, the Hebrew for vanity, is breath or wind. This frust- You know, if you try and catch the wind, who can catch the wind, you know? Get your hand on it or make substance out of the wind. That's the thought here. Life is, life can be frustrating. Why do things happen the way they do? Why don't they happen the way they should? That's what we're looking at this morning. I'm going to start with the issue of wisdom in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. You can look there if you want. Most of what we'll start with anyway comes straight out of Ecclesiastes. You know, wisdom is highly prized in the scripture. Ecclesiastes 1.18, Solomon says, In much wisdom there is much grief. And in increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Ecclesiastes 2.14 and 15, he says, The wise man's eyes are in his head. He sees. The wise man sees things. He has light. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. It's paradoxical. It's frustrating. It's not fair. You know, wisdom gives us the ability to live life well. And then Solomon turns us around, turns us around the wisest man on earth, and he says, but you know, there's a downside to wisdom. Why? Because the wiser I become, the more knowledge I gain, the more sadness and sorrow I have in my life. Why is that? You know, because in a world in which sin and death are the norm, the more I learn about this world and the discretion or the wisdom I pick up on on the way, it all has to do with death. It all has to do with sin. 
And so increasing wisdom, he says, which on one hand is a positive, he says there's this futility on the other side. Because the wiser I became, the, re- the, the more I recognize my sadness grows. Can you imagine this too? I mean, this is a tangent. God knows everything. God is wisdom. So to the degree that suffering or pain are related to what we know to be true and, and its deficiency, who can experience, I don't want to say frustration, but sadness more than God? God is emotional and he experiences emotion, not just as Jesus did on earth as a man, but God experienced emotion. This is said throughout both Testaments. But Solomon says this pain, this frustration tied to wisdom is because the wiser I get, the more I learn, the more I realize how sad life is, how much of a downside there is to life because of sin and death. He said, so that's a downside to even something that's inherently good wisdom or knowledge. But he also says, you know what else is bad about being wise? It doesn't change what happens to me. I can be, Solomon was, the wisest man on earth and still have bad things happen to me. And then the baddest thing happens to me too. What's that? I die. Death. Solomon's looking around and he says, you know, I've labored at wisdom. He had a divine gift of wisdom on one hand. God gave him wisdom and discernment like no other person other than his son, Jesus. So he gave him wisdom, but he worked at wisdom too. And then at the end, on one hand, he says, you know, why bother? Because the same things happen to the wise person that happened to the fool. And inevitably, the wise man, he can't stave off the day of death, just like the fool, he dies. Why bother? Frustration, paradox. If I'm wise, I'll avoid trouble? Well, not all of it. You do avoid trouble if you're wise. Proverbs is clear, another book Solomon penned most of. You do avoid some trouble, but you can't avoid all of it. Your wisdom cannot save you from all trouble and pain. That's what he's saying here. The fool goes along and he gets some bad things happen to him and I'm wise and I go along and some of the same bad stuff happens. I can't keep that away with my wisdom or my knowledge and it's frustrating to me. And then in the end I die just like the fool. What's fair, Lord, about that? What's fair about that? Possessing wisdom, Solomon says, does not shield us from all kinds of bad, painful, hurtful things. It's frustrating. It's a paradox. It's not fair. Chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes, he talks about mortality, the fact that we die. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21, Solomon says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts or animals. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts, animals, is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, They all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Solomon looks around. He knows the animals die. They corrupt, their bodies corrupt. They become part of the elements of the earth again. And you know what? Though man has this grandeur about him, created in the image of God. Solomon looks and he sees the same thing. Man, just like the animal, he dies. His body corrupts. He turns back to the dust of the earth too. He says, what's with this? 
What's fair about this? I thought I was more. I think he speaks both with hope, uh, uh, but also with less than hope when he says, who knows that the breath of man, can we really know, living on earth, he's kind of saying, can we really know that when I die, there's more to my life? Who can really tell me that my life, after my body corrupts, that there's something more, that I go to God afterwards, or that I'm just like the animal, that I just die and that's the end of it? And of course, many people in the world today believe that. I die and that's all there is. You know, what a, what a horrendous thought. You know, then you do want to eat, drink, and be merry because this is all we've got. So Solomon looks around and he says, you know what else frustrates me? It vexes me. It's vanity. It's that I'm mortal. I'm mortal just like the animals of the earth, and I die. Even though I'm a man, even though I have thought, and I can rationalize things, I still realize that just like the animals, I die. My body's buried in the ground, and it returns to the dust. What's fair, he says, about that? Ecclesiastes 8 he talks about the fate of the good and the evil. Sometimes I think, if, if not the others, this one I think probably strikes us more often than any of the other kinds of frustrations or vanities he's talking about here. Ecclesiastes 8.14, he says, There is futility which is done on the earth, that is. There are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. It ain't fair. Chapter 9, 2, and 3 say, It is the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that there is one fate for all. Now this is where most of us live. And what we're saying is, and what Solomon is saying is, the way I figure it, Lord, if I do right, I should be blessed. And if I do wrong, I should be judged. And Solomon looks around and he says, Lord, I've seen this, that the one who does right, sometimes what he gets is what looks like it belongs to the one who does wrong. And sometimes the one who does wrong, it looks like he's blessed like he's living clean and doing right. What's fair about this? This is vain. It's futile. It's paradoxical. It's not the way it seems like it ought to be. Is this, this is where I live. I'm sure it's where some of you live too. It's not right. It's not fair. Uh, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. And it's one of my favorites because David describes this. And he says, you know, I was looking out and I saw this wicked guy. And you know what his life looked like? He looked like a verdant tree by springs of water. He was growing. He was wealthy. There was no pain in his life. There was no downside. Everything in his life was blessed. But I knew he was a wicked person. Lord, what's fair about this? Why is this? Or think about Job. Here's Job. He does all the right things. He loves God. He really does. He prays for his kids every day. He sacrifices to the Lord regularly. And look what happens to him. And we could say with Job, what's fair about this, Lord? I did the right things, and this is what I get. It's vanity, Solomon says. It's futility. You know, we might think, uh, 
uh, you know, Lord, I'm doing the right thing, but that no good Yehu, uh, oh, I don't know what. He's richer than I am. He's, uh, he's got it easier. He's healthy, you know, or uh, that wicked guy, Lord, you know, he's married to a beautiful wife or that lousy, no good lady. She's married to a successful husband, you know, and I know what they're like. You know, why, why do they get the good stuff and I get the bad stuff or... Why don't the bad get the bad and the good get the good? You see, this is what Solomon's saying, and it's vexing him, and it's frustrating. It's vanity. It ain't fair, Lord. Why ain't life fair? That's what he's talking about. And I think if none of these other vanities, I think this is where most of us live. We are frustrated by the fact that at times we're doing right by God as we know it, and it seems like nothing but hardships coming our way. Or we'll look at people we know and we know what kind of life they live or what's important to them and we'd say, man, even if we don't use terms like evil or wicked, we'd say they don't do right. They don't do right and yet look at their life. They're just blessed. Life is good. It's not fair. And Solomon agrees. He says life ain't fair. And that frustrates us. It vexes us. If we take our lens out a little bit uh, further and look at the Old Testament, um, Genesis 47 is this great scene in which Jacob and his whole clan have come down from Israel because there's a famine. And you remember God sent Joseph ahead, not in ways Joseph wanted. It wasn't fair to Joe to be sold as a slave and imprisoned, etc. But Joe's down there, and here comes Dad, Jacob, and all the brothers and sisters. And you remember... Uh, Jacob's life we would characterize as a very as a good one, blessed by God. Listen to what Jacob says though to Pharaoh. <clears throat> Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, Genesis forty-seven seven through nine. How many years have you lived? Jacob is very obviously an old man. Jacob said to Pharaoh, "The years of my sojourning, my short walk on the earth, so to speak, are one hundred and thirty." Evelyn, you've got a way to go. 130. He says, Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Now just think about this for a minute. Here's Jacob. He's in the line of Christ. He is wealthy by any standard you choose to measure wealth. He's got many wives, he's got many children, he's got grandchildren, he's got money, he's got flocks and herds. From him comes the Messiah, from him comes the nation of Israel. Any way you want to look at it, Jacob was blessed. He looks back at 130 and tells Pharaoh, you know what, my life hasn't been that long. I'm old by our standards, 130, but my life's not that long in the first place. And my life as it is, the years, they've been few and they've been bitter. This guy was blessed, but he still had his hardships. You know, whether it's working for Uncle Laban and being cheated or the strife between his kids or one thing and another, so that this guy that we would say he led a blessed life, he looks back and say, man, it's been frustrating. It's been hard. Life ain't fair, you see. And this was a good life. This was a blessed life. His life was tinged with sadness and sorrow, just like the wise man Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes 1. Listen to this out of Luke 13. You know, sometimes uh, 
Maybe we think we, we understand a concept or sometimes you think your kid understands a concept and then they open their mouth and they, and they tell you what they think is true and you realize they've got it exactly wrong. And that's what's happening in Luke 13. These guys are coming to Jesus to tell him about something because they know that when something bad happens, it's because that's a bad person. And the wicked, they get judged. And the good, they get blessed. Right? Luke 13, 1. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate killed these folks. And Jesus knows what they're thinking, why they're telling him this. He answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. He goes on to say, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. That's not the point I want to draw here. He knows that they're coming and they're saying this. Those guys must have been evil and wicked because they were killed by Pilate. And Jesus says, not the case. Your understanding is wrong. Then he goes on to say, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Samaritans, those low-down, no-good, dirty Samaritans versus us godly, cool Jews in Jerusalem. You just think that, you assume that that tower fell. This was just a, you know, we read about building collapses or, or building fires or what thing, and one thing and another, and a building in Siloam had collapsed, killed these people. And along the same thought that they had earlier, Jesus knows they thought, well, those people, they were wicked, you see. And so God got them. How did he get them? Well, that building collapsed on them, and that showed them they were evil, and God judged them. And Jesus says, I tell you, no. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong because sometimes what looks like it should happen to the evil, it happens to the righteous. And what looks like the righteous should get, sometimes that's what the wicked get. That's the way life is on the earth. See, we want to assume that uh, A equals B. I do good, I get good. And Jesus says here, no, that's not necessarily the case. That's not necessarily the way it is. We want, uh, because we want things safe and predictable, we want a direct cause and effect. I know what I'm going to get because I know what I've done. And that's kind of what Solomon was after. But see, what he came to realize was that's not the way life is under the sun. That's not the way life is on planet Earth. There's this inherent frustration and futility and vanity to life on earth because things don't happen the way that we think they should. Sometimes they do, but you can't count on it. If you apply this to uh, very recently, we could say something like this. Were the children and the parents who were killed, murdered in Russia this last week at that school, was it because they were more sinful than their Russian neighbors? or than Russians in general, or than Americans, or than you or me. See, was God getting the wicked? It's the same thing. Jesus says, no, not the case. It's not the case. Or if we go back, it's almost uh, September 11th, it's this Saturday. The people who died in those planes, or in the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, see, these premature deaths, these these terrible, horrific things happened to them. Was that because they were sinful? See, and God was judging them? Did they get their just desserts? Jesus says, no. 
there is not a guarantee of a cause and effect relationship to the way things work on the earth. Jesus says that, and that's what Solomon said. That's why it's frustrating. We'd like things predictable. We'd like to know, if I do A, I get B. We want to see the wicked punished and the righteous blessed. But in this life on the earth, there's no guarantee of that. In fact, if you think of this, you know, to Christians, Paul said, if you strive to live a life of godliness for Christ, you'll endure persecutions. You'll do right, and God promises that you'll get it hard. See, not, I mean, talk about vanity or frustration. What do you mean, Lord? Such a deal. Come live for me, and you'll be punished and persecuted. But that's the deal. It doesn't seem like we're getting what we should. And that's what Solomon's coming to grips with. It's frustrating because it just doesn't look like life is fair. There's paradox, there's frustration, there's this inherent sense that life is not what it should be. And that's because it's not. You know, sometimes you might see or know someone who's smart, they're good-looking, they work hard, and they start a business, and their business fails. And someone else, no smarter, working no harder, no better looking, does the same thing, and they succeed. And you wonder, well, why one success and one failure? Is God somehow cursing one and blessing the other? And that's just not necessarily the way things work. Sometimes that's just the way of life on planet Earth. And remember that the vanity of life on Earth, the frustration, the unfairness, we could say, is because there's sin and death on the Earth. You know, a lot of times um, we want things to be good. We don't like suffering or pain or frustration. But the truth is, as long as we're on the earth, in these bodies, that's part of what we will experience. It is frustration because things don't happen the way it seems like they should. Because life isn't fair and it's because there's sin and death on the earth. It's a, it's a world ruled by sin and death. Uh, <clears throat> don't raise your hands, but I'm going to read a passage, and you tell me if any of you here can relate to the, the frustration and the paradox of this passage. I think the greatest frustration experienced on earth is uh, by Christians. And it's because of this. This is written by a Christian, and he's talking about this paradox he sees in his own life, this frustration that he just can't quite get around. And this is Paul writing in Romans chapter 7. He says, that which I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I don't wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I wish, I don't do. I practice the very evil that I don't wish. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? 
Is this a paradox? Every day, isn't it? This is a frustration for every Christian. You know, if you're a pagan, you do have a conscience. You can harden it over time. <clears throat> but if you're a Christian, you not only have a conscience, so you've got a new nature. It's a sinless nature. It does not sin. When Paul says, or John says later, Christian does not sin, he's not saying you and I don't sin. He's saying the new nature given us in Christ doesn't sin because it's like Christ. It can't sin. But we've, we're tied to sin in this body. And so here's the Christian with the war inside. Paul says, I know what to do. I knew the right, but I do the evil. I know the evil to avoid, but I don't do that. Galatians 5 says, you know, the spirit wars against the flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit. There is within the Christian this paradox that we know. We know better, but we still do wrong. We still sin. There's a dogfight within, so to speak. And, of course, Romans 8 goes on to talk about walking in the Spirit. But, you know, the truth is that as long as you're on this earth, you will suffer the futility, the paradox, the unfairness, that even though you know to do right, you'll still sin. Because that's life on the earth, even for the redeemed. We don't have to sin, but John tells us if you say you don't, you're lying. If you say you have no sin, you're sinning because you're lying. That's not true. That all of us, as long as we're in the body, we fall short of God's standards. And we have within ourselves this built-in futility because we know what we should be. We know what we're called to, and we simply are not able to live up to it. So life on the earth, Solomon says, Paul reiterates, even for the Christian, it's inherently connected to frustration, futility, vanity, even for those who know God and those who are saved. And on that happy thought, let us close. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Adrian's ready to pray. <clears throat> no. Um, what do you do with this? You know, what do you do with the fact that frustration and vanity, unfairness, so to speak, is built in to this life? What do you do with it? I'd suggest at least two things. One is that we simply realize it. We simply realize it. And by that I mean we don't unwisely set our expectations on things to happen a certain way. We don't say, Lord, I'm doing A, and so I know B is going to happen. You know, sometimes you're going to do the right thing, and it's not going to turn out well. Count on it. I guess that's what I'm saying. Count on this element of life being a, uh, if not normal, a regular part of your experience of life on the earth. Expect futility. Expect frustration. So that when it happens, when that unfair thing happens in your life, or to someone you know or care about, you don't get what you want, or you get what you don't want, realize, say to yourself again, you know what? This is part of life on earth. You know, a lot of times... <clears throat> We've known Christians who've had infants die in infancy. You know, if there's anything you could do, you'd, you'd say, God loves me. He loves my child. He's the victor over sin and death, and he can heal my child, and then he doesn't. And what do you say? How do you come to grips with that? Well, part of it is that God still allows this futility even in the lives of Christians, even in the lives of those he knows. So the first thing is just this, 
take the pie in the sky out of your eye and say, Lord, I realize that a part of life on this earth is futility and that this is going to touch my life too. So that when it does, you're not devastated. You know, frankly, most of us respond, most of us, we're not with Solomon. We haven't come to grips with this. Because when something bad happens, what do we do? You know, I was drilling holes yesterday in my front porch. And it looked like they didn't come out right. You know what my first thought was? Thanks a lot, Lord. I measured it right. I did everything right. Look at this mess. What am I going to do now? I was embarrassed. I'm sorry. But I was ready to blame God that my holes didn't line up. It was my first thought. You know what my first thought should be? You know, it happens. Life's not fair. Sometimes it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go or the way I think it's supposed to go. So that when it doesn't work out the way you thought it should, the way you thought was fair, Sean, we say, Lord, I realize life on the earth, this is part of the deal. That's the first thing. Count on it. Expect it. In a sense, plan for it. Or at least plan emotionally that it's going to happen so you're not devastated when it does. Count on it. Expect it. The second thing is this. This is true only for Christians. God promises in Romans 8 that even though there's a downside, there is this inherent futility to life on the earth, even for his children. He says on the upside, if you will, of this futility, he promises to take the futility, the paradox, the frustrations, the unfair things that happen to you and I on this earth, he promises to take them and turn them around, turn around something that is inherently deficient or evil or bad and use it for our good. Now, that doesn't always soften the blow, the immediate blow of whatever it is that we're experiencing or not experiencing. But it does count. And when we, let's just say that when we get over the immediate emotion of the thing, and I realize, God, I know that you're going to take this frustration and you're going to use it for my good, that's a good thing. You know, sometimes it's not an immediate improvement. Sometimes it's just that I know God is causing me to focus on him. He may be causing me through the pain or the frustration to be thankful that where I'm going is better than where I'm at. He may be helping me hold a little more loosely the things of this world that I want to clutch on to because I realize, gosh, it's not all that it should be or could be. Lord, thanks that heaven is to come. He may be training my character. And you remember, uh, Paul says in Romans 5, I exult in tribulations. And he wasn't a masochist. But he knew that through the difficulties, God would transform his personality and his character. And he would develop an outlook and a stamina, a faith that he would not have otherwise. And in that sense, we can think about these in God's hands as a... uh, an athlete in training, that he's using the hard, painful things for good. Otherwise, it'd just be downside. But if you're a Christian, God promises to use even the futility of life for your good. There will be an upside to it. So the first thing is count on futility. Count on life's not fair. And the unfair things are going to happen to you and they're going to happen to me. So don't be caught by surprise. This is part of life. And the second thing is thank God that he'll use these unfair things, these hard things, for your good. 
And sometimes that's, we can see that short term, sometimes we can't. Sometimes it's character formation, sometimes it's simply the, uh, the way that we're transformed by letting, letting go, holding a little more loosely the things of this earth and getting our hearts ready for the things God has for us in heaven. Let me close with a poem <clears throat> by Anne Bronte. This is called God and the Experience of Men. She writes, These weary hours will not be lost, these days of misery, these nights of darkness, anguish tossed, can I but turn to thee. With secret labor to sustain in patience every blow, to gather fortitude from pain and holiness from woe. If thou should bring me back to life, more humble I should be, more wise, more strengthened for the strife, more apt to lean on thee. Should death be standing at the gate, thus should I keep my vow. But Lord, whatever be my fate, oh, let me serve thee now. It's a perspective that transcends the futility of life or the pain or the unfairness. Lord, help me keep my eyes set on you. Use this thing, use me in the futility of life, in the futile, paradoxical, frustrating things of life. Help me keep my eyes on you. You know, the upside of this is paradox is just for, uh, in the words of the psalmist, you know, uh, morning uh, lasts for the night, but then joy comes in the morning. And that's the thought here, you know, futility, paradox, frustration, it lasts for a little while. But just like joy, it's coming in the morning, the upside. We lose frustration and paradox when we see Christ face to face. Well, let's pray. Lord, even in redemption, the remnants of sin and death are still at work, both in the world we inhabit and in our own bodies. Lord, we acknowledge that we sin because there's still that sinful element within these human fleshly bodies, these bodies that Solomon saw simply return to the dust, just like the animals around us. Lord, thanks that we have been born for higher and better things and that the breath does return upward to God who gave it. Lord, thanks that even in futility, there's an upside because you promised to use it to bless us and to train us and to guide us. Father, thanks that in the end we realize that futility is tied to this life only, but that a day will dawn, eternity, when we'll see you face to face, when we enjoy our glorified bodies, when every remnant, every vestige of sin and death is long gone, left behind, and there's only this eternal day in which righteousness dwells, in which there's peace and joy, in which all work, Lord, is blessed, in which there are pleasures forevermore. Thanks that vanity is like morning. Lord, it's only going to last through the night. Thanks that your eternal day is coming. Lord, as we experience a little bit of frustration and vanity in our lives on the earth, life under the sun, help us to remember it's brief and momentary and that, Lord, you promised to use it even now for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.